You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Today was supposed to be about healing between the VPD and the Haltsuk First Nation after the wrongful arrest of an Indigenous man and his granddaughter nearly three years ago. Instead, it seems to have deepened the divide. The two officers involved didn't show up for a planned apology ceremony today, leaving the community feeling disappointed and disrespected. Our Nithu Garcha is in Bella Bella, where this was to have taken place at the community's big house. Nithu. Well, Sophie, the planned traditional apology ceremony was converted to what the nation calls an uplifting ceremony for the family of Maxwell Johnson and his granddaughter, Tori Ann. The nation says it was forced to make this decision last minute because it was only able to confirm those arresting officers wouldn't be in attendance here when the plane touched down in Bella Bella Monday afternoon. Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer and Deputy Chief Howard Chow among the VPD and Vancouver Police Board members arriving at the small Bella Bella Airport for a big moment in a high-profile case of wrongful arrest. The remote community is home to Maxwell Johnson and his granddaughter, Tori Ann. The two were handcuffed outside this Bank of Montreal branch in Vancouver after trying to open a bank account in December of 2019. Johnson says having the arresting officers in this big house for the planned apology ceremony would have meant a lot. It's very upsetting. Um, I would have loved to have this over and done with, but now we have to figure out where, what we're going to do next. Um, I was really looking forward to having a ceremony done so we could move on with our lives. The police board, which is hosting the ceremony, says it made its best efforts for the officers to attend and can't speak to why they're not here. When a colonial institution seeks to reconcile and, and to begin reconcili reconciliation together, it is a prerequisite that they show respect for our customs and engage directly with our communities. Torian was just 12 years old when the incident happened. A bank staff member suspected them of presenting fraudulent Indigenous status cards and called 911. A discipline decision ruled that the officers, Constable Cannon Wong and Mitchell Tong, recklessly used unnecessary force, committed professional misconduct, and assumed fraud without sufficient information. A groundbreaking settlement agreement announced last month includes $100,000 in funding to Heltzik Nation's Restorative Justice Department. And it's like they're stepping on our culture. They're not taking into account uh, our way of life. The apology ceremony was also meant to be part of the conditions of two separate human rights complaint settlements with the bank and police board. Instead, it was changed for reasons the nation refers to as newly placed barriers in their healing journey. As this case continues to spark national conversations on racial profiling and changes in handcuffing policies, Heltzik Nation says the officer's failure to attend is a symptom of a larger failure to take responsibility for and acknowledge systemic racism within the Vancouver Police Department. Sophie? Thanks for that. Nithu Garcha reporting in Bella Bella. A sentencing hearing has begun for a Richmond RCMP officer convicted of sex crimes for exposing himself to teenage girls. Grace Key has the latest. Crown is seeking 18 to 24 months with two years probation, so that would avoid federal prison time. Defense is calling this grossly excessive and is asking for a conditional sentence, so that would mean no jail time. 
In July, a jury found 37-year-old suspended Richmond RCMP Constable Andrew Ciangio guilty of seven counts of committing an indecent act in public for a sexual purpose and three counts of exposing himself to a person under 16 years of age. The offenses started in 2018. Over a six-month period, he exposed himself to private school girls walking near the area of York House and Little Flower Academy. This included four students, one as young as 14, and undercover police officers officers in a sting operation. The students submitted victim impact statements. They were not read out in court, but Crown said the girls felt less safe walking alone and they were dismayed to learn the suspect was an RCMP officer. Letters from Ciangio, his wife and sister were also submitted. Defense read Ciangio's letter in court. I write this letter to express my sincerest apologies and what I have put everyone through. He wrote about knowing what the victims were going through as a person who has experienced victimization at a young age. At an early age, I was bullied and ridiculed. And that was because of his heritage. To his fellow officers, he wrote he understood how difficult it was to testify against one of their own. As a police officer, I know we function stronger as a team. Crown says the victims were young, the offenses were planned, and they noted his position as a police officer. Defense noting Ciangio was not on duty while committing the offenses. He has no criminal record. There has been extensive media coverage, and his lifestyle has changed. He's married and has a baby. Ciangio is currently suspended without pay, and his status as an RCMP officer is currently under review. A sentencing date has been set for November 3rd at 10 a.m. In Vancouver, Grace Key, Global News. Homicide investigators have now identified the victim of a targeted shooting in Langley last week. Police arrived at a home in the Willoughby area late Thursday to find bullet holes in a vehicle's driver's side window and a man who'd been shot several times. He's now been identified as 35-year-old B2 Shashat of Langley. IHIT is seeking dash cam video from the 7700 block of 211B Avenue and the area of 232nd Street and 76A Avenue, where a burning Ford F-150 was found later that night. The RCMP's serious crime unit has now identified the man and woman found dead after a fire in Summerland last month. Firefighters contacted police after finding two bodies when they were called to an area near the Penticton Shooting Sport Range on September 15th. RCMP have now identified the two as Alana Brown and Douglas Barker, both 30 years old, both from Penticton. The pair was last seen the day before, and RCMP would like to speak with anyone who might have seen them in the days leading up to their deaths. The convicted killer who's accused of smashing the windows of a Vancouver bank, not once, but twice, with both incidents caught on video, appeared in court today. Bermina Dea tells us why this time he has been kept in custody. Curtis George McCallum was not released back into the community. This time he's going from jail to hospital. The court ordering a forensic psych assessment. For the second time in five weeks, a suspect was captured on camera, smashing the windows at the TD Bank on the edge of Gastown. McCallum was arrested and charged with mischief, the damage in excess of $300,000. The motive? In downtown community court Monday, Crown said McCallum did it because he doesn't have shelter. A troubling criminal history dating back to Edmonton where in 2009, McCallum was sentenced to nine years in prison for manslaughter and aggravated assault, for killing his aunt and stabbing her common-law husband. It's not clear how long 47-year-old McCallum will be held under the Mental Health Act. 
His next court appearance is November 7th. Romina Dea, Global News. For years, nurses, doctors, and other health care workers have pleaded for more protections on the job, and they might finally have their wish as the province announced it'll be beefing up security at a number of high-risk facilities across B.C. Kamal Kuramali has the details. I am really so scared. This nurse, a victim of workplace violence at Vancouver General Hospital in 2017. I selected nursing to care for people, but... I don't want to be assaulted. In 2019, a nurse at Abbotsford Hospital struck with a dumbbell. And just two months ago, a woman threatening staff at the BC Women's Hospital with what police called an edged weapon. Workplace BC numbers show more than 2,200 workers in acute care were injured in the last five years due to acts of violence. And those are only the incidents that got reported. It is so underreported because it's just become nobody does anything about it. Monday, the province decided to do something about it, beefing up security at healthcare facilities around the province. Security personnel will be able to anticipate, de-escalate, and ultimately prevent aggression and violence. About 320 in-house protection services officers and 14 violence prevention leads will be hired in 26 healthcare settings across the province, including three within Vancouver Coastal Health and eight facilities under the Fraser Health Authority, seven in the interior. The plan also includes training healthcare workers in de-escalation. It's a start. It's a start. The B.C. Nurses Union now hoping for more security personnel in more locations. Nurses also asking for more staff, arguing if healthcare professionals aren't stretched thin and can give patients the attention they need, then there will be fewer conflicts. They're not necessarily able to be in a relational mindset when they're very task-focused. They have pressings and injections and uh, multiple tasks. The province now hoping these new measures will allow nurses to feel safe enough to apply for those job openings. Kamal Karamali, Global News. The projections for new students in the Surrey School District were off the mark by hundreds this fall, creating a crunch for classroom space. As Amadagahi tells us, with the population growing exponentially in Surrey, it's highlighting the need for more permanent solutions. This is the site that will one day become Snogomish Elementary, with capacity for 655 students that in the current situation will be crucial in the city of Surrey. Our school district is the largest and the fastest growing in the province. Typically we see growth at to about 1,000 new students every school year, but this past school year we had 2,200 new students. And so many of our schools are over capacity. Surrey's population has increased by more than 50,000 people since 2016. And according to its own estimates, by 2026, the city will have grown by 100,000 people in just over 10 years. In its submission for the five-year capital plan, Surrey is asking for nine new schools, with parents hoping those schools will be built sooner rather than later. Karen Tan says some schools are so overcrowded that the idea of a two-bell schedule or staggered start times has been discussed. That means um, drop-off, pick-up is a full-time job, just in the morning and after school. Uh, as a taxpayer, I want our students to learn in an environment where 
uh, they are treated uh, the same as uh, any other student in any other school district. The education minister, Jennifer Whiteside, was unavailable for an interview, but blamed underfunding by the previous government for much of Surrey's school capacity issues. Her ministry adding that during its five years in charge, the NDP government has invested $475 million in Surrey, which can result in 10,000 student seats by 2025. Until then, the city often advertising itself as the province's and even the country's fastest growing is struggling to have its most crucial services keep up. I really want just commitment, like commitment and put show us the dollars, build us the schools. And that's what parents really want. Imad Gahi, Global News. In his own words, Premier John Horgan gives a brutally honest take on his decision to step away from politics and the legacy he'll leave behind when he does. That's next on the News Hour. Doing in-person celebration is more better. Yeah. The annual celebration of light begins. How local communities are celebrating Diwali coming up later. And a dog walk that turned into a whale watching expedition. That's later on the news hour as well. First though, as David Eby prepares to move into the Premier's office, John Horgan is preparing to move out. After more than five years on the job, Horgan is looking back on his most significant accomplishments and, as Richard Zussman reports, his one big regret. John Horgan has been an institution around these parts for decades, starting as a political staffer, moving up through the opposition ranks as an MLA, becoming the NDP leader, and most recently, five years as Premier. I've been doing this kind of work for almost 30 years, and it's exhausting. It's very rewarding. It's now time for the 63-year-old to pack up. Throat cancer and the rigorous treatments that followed cut time in this office short. I did not intend to stop. Cancer is a, is a, can I say that? Can you bleep me on that? But it is. Uh, families know that across the province. The accomplishment list is lengthy, dramatically cutting childcare costs, expanding benefits for kids in provincial care, dropping tolls on bridges, cutting ICBC rates, getting rid of MSP premiums, and becoming the first province to adopt the UN Declaration on the Rights for Indigenous Peoples. Finally breaking the logjam between those who have been here for time immemorial and those like me and others who have come recently to this land. Horgan's term also defined by crisis. Tension on energy projects from Trans Mountain to LNG, record-breaking wildfires, devastating floods, and COVID-19. Solutions still not all there. Whether it be fires, floods, uh, heat domes, uh, atmospheric rivers, uh, toxic drug supply, a global pandemic, and now a sense of de deconstruction of our society. These are big deals, and I'm retiring. Sorry. After thousands of decisions, there are few Horgan regrets. But when prodded, there's one mammoth one he'd like to have back. The Royal BC Museum debacle. I am pleased that now that uh, we've made the announcement that we're not proceeding with the capital plan and we're having another discussion with the public, that they'll come up with an even better plan. Horgan looking forward to spending more time with his wife Ellie and figuring out what comes next. It's a bit of a void, but I'm excited about that. I've been doing this type of work for a long time and I'm looking forward to something a little bit different. Uh, what that is, I really don't know. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Look forward to seeing what's next for him. In the meantime, uh, right now, Keith Baldry joins us now with a little bit more on Premier-designate David Eby's schedule today. Keith Eby attended his first caucus meeting 
as Premier-designate. Uh, so I guess this really is, if not officially, at least in reality, a new era beginning. Yeah, the new era, the new David E.B. era is beginning uh, slowly but surely. It's going to take some time to get through the transition. Began today, though, with a bit of a photo op at the legislature. Uh, Premier Horgan and Mr. E.B. walking through the hallways of the legislature. This is all orchestrated for the cameras, the television cameras, making their way through the halls uh, after leaving Mr. Horgan's office and making their way to the caucus room, where, again, an eager caucus was awaiting his arrival. Uh, again, more than 50 MLAs gathering to give him a standing order ovation no surprise there uh, and it didn't really say much in the in the caucus room at least when we were there we were ushered out the media was ushered out fairly quickly but I can tell you the caucus uh, fairly upbeat and enthusiastic about the new transition uh, today so he's now going to be burying his head in a lot of books for the next few days he's got to read the briefing books from all the ministries that he's received that's a lot of work we're talking hundreds of pages in each ministry book then tomorrow we're going to find out his chief of staff and other key appointments including his deputy minister. Uh, again, the briefings will continue. And then he gets sworn in as premier. No date has officially been set, but I've been told to expect the second week of November, likely November 8th or 9th. And then we'll see what he does after that. Does he shuffle his cabinet? Does he make more changes? A lot of anticipation over here with the incoming of a new premier. We don't see that every day. And it's, uh, it's a bit of a buzz in the hallways today. No doubt. Okay. Thanks very much, Keith. Lots to come in the following weeks here. Appreciate it. And coming up on the news hour, when every trip to the grocery store is traumatic. Maybe a new study from the Competition Bureau will give us some answers. The mystery it might help solve next. And a woman who noticed something very important was missing on her breast cancer recovery journey and what she's doing to make it right. Good evening. The rain has started and traffic is easing off. Eastbound along Highway 1 through Burnaby right now with just a little bit of congestion at merge points like Willingdon and Kensington. Sussex Insurance has auto plan offices inside the Real Canadian Superstores and Walmarts throughout B.C. Find your nearest location at sussexinsurance.com. Open 9 to 9 every day. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Centre. Grocery prices are increasing at the fastest rate in more than 40 years, and a lot of people are wondering why. Canada's competition watchdog is going to study whether grocery retailers themselves are to blame. Our Consumer Matters reporter, Andrea, is here with more. And Thanks, Sophie. Amid high inflation, consumers are paying a lot more for food, while grocery giants are still turning profits. The Competition Bureau is launching a study of grocery store competition with the goal of recommending measures governments can take to help combat grocery price hikes. Fresh vegetables, meat, dairy products and baked goods are all more expensive at the grocery store. The cost of groceries jumped 11.4% in September compared with a year ago. Loblaws, which operates Real Canadian Superstore and No Frills, reported net earnings of $387 million dollars in the second quarter of this year. That's an increase of 12 million or 3.2 percent over the first quarter. Empire, which owns Safeway, Sobeys, IGA and Freshco, recorded net earnings of 187.5 million in the first quarter of 2022 compared to 188.5 million last year. The company stating a strong start in fiscal 2023. Meantime, food economists say the Competition Bureau's probe of rising grocery prices is long overdue. What I think is a real problem is that you have uh, regulators not working uh, together with uh, with politicians. Uh, two weeks ago, we heard from 
Parliament, they're going to be looking into food prices. And now you have the Competition Bureau doing a study. Uh, in the United States, actually, both worlds work together. Uh, and that's why within months, often you'll have companies uh, being targeted and and have to be made, uh, are made accountable towards the public very quickly. Uh, in Canada, it takes uh, forever to, to do anything. Now, the study will examine three key questions. To what extent are higher grocery prices a result of changing competitive dynamics? What can we learn from steps other countries have taken to increase competition? And how can governments lower barriers to entry and expansion to stimulate competition for consumers? The public is invited to give its input on rising food prices and retail grocery competition. The Bureau's website is accepting feedback until December 16th. The watchdog will provide provide a set of recommendations for the government in its final report, which it plans to publish in June of 2023. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters.globalnews.ca. All right, Anne, thank you very much. More layoffs to tell you about in the forestry industry, this time in West Kelowna. Gorman Brothers Sawmill is laying off 11 employees there. The company says it's regrettable but inevitable because timber supply has been shrinking, caused in part by the mountain pine beetle. There are concerns about further layoffs, but the B.C. Council of Forest Industries says there are ways to keep the industry sustainable. So there are things we can do, uh, like climate, more climate-smart forestry, uh, partnerships with Indigenous communities, Indigenous reconciliation, to manage some of these changes in a way that will enable B.C. to really continue to be a leader in sustainable forest management. In August, West Fraser Timber cut 147 jobs at three different mills. And in September, Canfor announced it would be reducing production capacity until the end of 2022. Just ahead, the latest from the Emergencies Act inquiry. I will absolutely concede we didn't, um, didn't notify Superintendent Bernier early enough. A closer look at the decisions and mistakes made on the streets of our nation's capital. And a much more modern twist on breast cancer recovery for women who've never seen themselves as part of the picture. From the stories we need to know to a look at what's happening right now around us. When BC needs to connect, BC turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. Connect. Traffic is steady in both directions tonight at the Patello Bridge with just a bit of volume on the Columbia on-ramp to head south out of New West. Through a charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Auto Glass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Ottawa's interim police chief has testified about the breakdown in management structure and decision-making as multiple police agencies dealt with the truck convoy protest earlier this year. To help get some answers, Ontario's Premier and Solicitor General have also been summoned to appear at the Commission as witnesses. Global's Kyle Benning has the details. The weeks of horns blaring and thousands of people on Parliament Hill was a nightmare for Ottawa Police Service. The interim chief says he did not expect the protest to use city centre residents as leverage in their demonstration. And Steve Bell spoke about how difficult it was to pass along communication once more agencies became involved. No fault attributed to anyone, just there was not clear clarity across, across the services. 
uh, across ourselves in terms of what constituted each of, the, each of those decisions. Bell noted there were two teams forming protest policing plans which became entangled. Strategic teams which would look to accomplish policing goals and operational teams which would look for ways to achieve those goals. He noted the cross-communication saw toes being stepped on and that was further complicated when Ontario Provincial Police and RCMP were on the ground. She made it pretty transparent. Nothing was being hid. On Monday, the Commission summoned Ontario's Premier and Solicitor General to appear as witnesses. Doug Ford and Sylvia Jones refused to interview with the Commission's lawyers last month. And then the Public Order Emergency Commission invited them to appear as witnesses. And they have not been asked. Ontario's Attorney General says the government wants a judicial review to set aside the summons. During Monday's session, Bell noted hesitation from then-Chief Peter Slowly about the help from other police forces. He said Ottawa Police Service was trying to facilitate negotiations with protesters who were occupying residential areas of the city, and there was a concern about the political optics of any policing action. Bell also noted communication within their own agency was flawed. I will absolutely concede we didn't um, didn't notify Superintendent Bernier early enough. But I, you have to remember the time and place we were in, and this was becoming an even, what was a dangerous city before. This was compounding it. The second full week will see more Ottawa police and OPP officers testify before the former Ottawa police chief is expected to take the stand Friday. Kyle Benning, Global News. Well, breast cancer is the most common cancer in Canadian women, making up 25% of all new cancer cases. One in eight Canadian women will be diagnosed with it in their lifetime. For many young women, the journey back to health is difficult and can bring about unexpected changes. I remember thinking back then, the only thing that I'd really have to think about was you know, this mastectomy. After she was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 46, Calgarian Brandy Cockerton had a mastectomy and breast reconstruction. How do you wrap your head around, like, losing your breasts, losing your nipples, losing the whole thing, and then still somehow feeling like a sexual being? For Brandy, surgery was followed by chemotherapy, which led to a loss of libido when the drugs forced her into menopause. She struggled to cope with all the changes to her body. Kimberly Cullen, a psychologist in Toronto, says Brandy isn't alone among cancer survivors. A lot of women will report that if the conversations are going on, they do tend to be about reproduction and family planning as opposed to, you know, sexual satisfaction and side effects. Brandy says she tried her best to prepare herself for the mastectomy, but the side effects of chemo treatment can include damage to peripheral nerves that can result in pain and discomfort. Nobody ever talks about like your sexual organs being affected by neuropathy. And so when that started to happen to me, I honestly, I was so freaked. I was like, I don't know what's happening. Calgary resident Hillary Boswell was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer at age 39. She felt her request for a double mastectomy was dismissed by her oncologist, who said he didn't want to remove healthy tissue. I remember struggling so much with like the idea of walking around with only one boob. I thought I knew what I wanted and yeah, I wish I had done it. Cullen says healthcare workers need to be thoughtful about the advice they offer. And just thinking about the way we are framing or having these discussions, explicitly asking, have you thought about reconstruction or not having reconstruction, um, just to allow women sort of the permission to even consider for themselves. She says oncologists need to think about sexual and mental health as part of an overall treatment plan for women with cancer and recognize the potential long-term impact. Alyssa Julie, Global News. 
Coming up, millions around the world celebrate the start of Diwali. Happy Diwali, everybody. How people feel about getting together for the Festival of Lights after two years apart during COVID. And in sports, Canucks in crisis. What to expect from a team still looking for its first win of the season. Big boost today for one of BC's most popular tourist attractions. Today, I am extremely excited uh, to be announcing $10 million in funding for Science World through the Government of Canada's Tourism Relief Fund. That $10 million bucks is from a fund to help the country's tourism industry recover from the pandemic. It'll create more than 125 new jobs and allow Science World to provide world-class educational programming for years to come. It will support critical infrastructure upgrades, including improvements to the dome itself, new energy efficient lighting, and mechanical upgrades. It will mean more people can fully enjoy Science World. Enhanced accessibility features will enable visitors with mobility challenges to experience every floor of this inspirational uh, space. The money will also be used to help launch a Science World exhibit next year that will highlight the relationship between science, technology and art. As a parent who's taken a kid there, a child there, I hope they don't lose the ball launcher. It's my favorite one. As an adult who just goes there as an adult. Right. All of us are with you on that <laughs> <laughs> so well. It's a fun place. Sure is. All right. And, yeah, and of course, mm -hmm. a good place for kids. Let's bring in Christy Gordon now. I'm sure you and the kids have spent lots of time at Science World, especially as it, the weather turns. It's a good place to go indoors, Christy. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of people will be looking for indoor activities over the next little while. You can likely hear the rainfall right now, and this is actually a little bit lighter than it was about 15 minutes ago. It was coming down so hard here in North Vancouver, and even looking behind me, off on the corner there, it's actually a break in the cloud. This behind me here is a massive dark cloud. Here's a look at the radar imagery. So if you're in eastern sections, expect that heavy rainfall to shift into your region in not too long. It has taken over much of Metro Vancouver, and that heavy rain will likely last. Now, I have heard reports of a few lightning strikes, but overall, this is just a rain event as it continues to track towards the east. We do have special weather statements in place. So the north coast and central coast, 100 millimeters of rain is possible in 24 hours, gusts up to 100 kilometers an hour, and there's a water spout watch. Here's a look at the system that's going to drive onto the coast there. It will impact the south coast also, mainly Vancouver Island during the day tomorrow, but it will shift across our region tomorrow late afternoon evening bringing heavy rain. We'll see very windy conditions along the Strait of Georgia below warning criteria but still gusts up to 60 kilometers an hour. Now a bit of a break is expected on Wednesday but look at the massive system across the north and central coast again and that's going to impact our region. So we certainly have fall-like weather on the way. We needed the rain and we've got it. Here's a look at tomorrow. So majority of the rain across the north and central coast. Lighter amounts in the interior although Williams Lake and Vailmont you may wake up to a few light flurries. A heavy rain, windy conditions across Vancouver Island, especially through the Strait of Georgia, and we'll see that along the water's edge, the wind. But rainfall in our region, more likely in the uh, late afternoon, evening hours. In the morning, it's going to be more shower activity, but the heavier rain later in the day. Nice bright spot on Wednesday, but by Wednesday night, we're right back into rain. A uh, little too early, by the way, for the Halloween forecast, but stay tuned for that. And tonight's central windows weather window is the cell that I am seeing right now. This is as it was still over the Strait of 
of Georgia. You can see that heavy rain to the right there. Thank you to Steve for sharing that so quickly for us. Too early for the Halloween forecast, but we were already, we've already run out of Halloween candy in the newsroom. But Big, big box <laughs> disappeared here, Christy. You're missing out. Uh, all right, thanks, Christy. Well, the best of BC was on display this morning in the water off Pender Harbor. Our former colleague, Randy Neal, sent us these spectacular videos recorded while she was out walking her dog. Several humpback whales in the water just offshore, and it appears they were hungry, feeding on either anchovies or herring. A seal was also in the mix, likely feeding off the scraps. Locals say the whales have been visiting for about a week now. It's a buffet out there in the water. Nice neighborhood she's uh, it's living pretty, in. Pretty good. All right, well, last week, as you know, was Variety Week, a week where we shared stories of kids from across B.C. who received support from Variety, the children's charity. In order to help more children get the assistance they need, we set a goal of raising enough money to help 800 kids. That's a lot of money. But you smashed that goal, B.C., by raising over $2.2 million throughout the week, which means Variety will be able to help 889 more children. So on behalf of everyone at Variety here at Global BC and all of the kids and families you met this past week, thank you so much for your support, especially those sponsors who during the news hour were matching donations. And that was a big help. So thanks to everybody who took part. And don't forget, you can always go to their website, variety.bc.ca, any time of the year, not just Variety Week, and donate to BC Special Kids. Exactly. All right, Squire. Sorry, I had yes. something in my eye. What's that? I had something in my eye, but... Oh, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine now. It was a tear for the it Canucks. It was a little bit of a tear. Really? Or I don't know what it is. I, I'm, aren't we past tears now? It's early. It's early. I mean, if, if they are still this way in January, then I think you should just go full waterworks. <laughs> it might happen. Yeah. They do play Carolina tonight. Still, the Canucks have yet to win. And they'll have to play tonight without the injured Quinn Hughes and Brock Besser, among others. Like I say the same thing every day. It's not as bad as you guys think it is. So, this guy's not falling, certainly. Well, it's making Sophie cry. <laughs> That's the way this is going. That's, anyway, we'll preview tonight's game. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks, Squire. Also tonight, Diwali and the triumph of light over darkness. How this important South Asian holiday is bringing BC families together. Let's, uh, let's hope the celebration of light turns into a celebration of victory tonight for Canucks fans. Yes, they'll be wearing their special warm-up jerseys. Um, okay, to celebrate Diwali. Now, on Saturday, when Vancouver Canucks were losing their first home game in what has become their own little stranger things to start the season, we saw more defensive, bad, bad defensive play, I should say. JT Miller and Luke Shen were yelling at each other after the second period. Fans were booing. Someone even threw a Canucks jersey on the ice. And tonight, Carolina is here, which is one of the best teams in the NHL, and the Canucks will have to play them, missing both Quinn Hughes and Brock Besser, who are out. Jay has more on tonight's game. We may only be two weeks and a half a dozen games into the season, but on Saturday night during the Canucks' 5-1 loss to the Buffalo Sabres, Canucks fans made it abundantly clear third-period no-show efforts and the piling up of losses, six straight and counting, won't be tolerated and the reverberation of being booed off the ice is still being felt in the Canucks dressing room. You get the fans frustrations but it sucks to see you know um, you know we're not 
trying to uh, to go out there and, and and play like the way we did. It's just um, we got to find a way to, to win hockey games. Obviously, they want wins. We want wins in here, and and um, we get their frustration, and, and we got to be a lot better. I got a job to do. I'm not worried about if people want to come to the game, pay all that money, and throw their jersey on the ice. Go ahead. I don't. I got a job to do. Um, I'm worried about beating the Hurricanes today and having a good start to the game and us really trying to come together as a team, not whether people want to toss their gear on the ice or not. Tonight, the Canucks get a Carolina Hurricanes club that blew a 2-0 lead before losing in overtime to the Calgary Flames on the weekend. The Canes are 3-1-1 to start the season. Quinn Hughes was not on the ice for the Canucks this morning. Neither was Brock Besser. Hughes will not play tonight and is now listed as week-to-week. -week. Besser, he won't play either. Brock is day-to-day. -day. Tucker Pullman has been placed on injured reserve. So not only are the losses piling up for the Canucks, so too are the injuries. This is a banged-up hockey club in more ways than one. We want to go out there and we want to play our asses off and, and uh, hopefully everybody understands that we're, we're trying our best to win. We all want to win. There's nobody out here that's sitting there saying, hey, listen, we don't, you know, whatever happens, happens. We're going out there to win every game. It just hasn't happened yet. I mean, part of this job is being a man and doing your job. So if everybody looks at each other in the mirror and steps up a little bit, you should never feel like you're not going to win. Now you will see some lineup changes for the Vancouver Canucks tonight. JT Miller skated alongside Bo Horvat at practice yesterday with Nils Oman centering the third line with Tucker Pullman on injured reserve. Guillaume Breezeboy has been recalled from Abbotsford. He will play tonight. It's the Canes and Canucks, 7.30 from Rogers Arena with your ringside report, Jay Janower, Global Sports. Quinn Hughes goes from day to day to week to week. That is not good. Okay, so when you haven't won in six games, it's because a lot of different things are going wrong, especially defensively. But if you look back to last season, one of the reasons the Canucks didn't pay for defensive mistakes as much as they are this year was Thatcher Demko. He bailed Vancouver out countless times, but he's yet to do that this season. Not to blame him, but it's part of the many issues. For example, we've yet to see this kind of 9-1-1 rescue save from Demko. Not that there are a lot of these in a game, but the point is, so far, he hasn't been Thatcher the goal snatcher. This year has not passed the smell test yet. Demko is facing roughly the same amount of shots per game as he did last season, but he hasn't been able to bail his boys out as much as we are used to. Okay, and here is the most pertinent number when you look at Thatcher Demko. Last year, 9.15 save percentage. Right now, 8.58. That is an off-the-cliff drop. Obviously, that has to change in a big way. Look who's playing in Cheddar tonight. Connor McDavid and Sidney Crosby. There he is right there. And Sidney's going to score. Ricard Raquel gets the puck across. That made it 2-1. The Pens were up 3-1 at one point. And look at this. Connor McDavid shoved into the net hitting it where there are no pads. He went off the ice, but he came back, and uh, the Oilers have rallied. They now leave 5-3 after two. The Montreal Canadiens goaltender Carey Price is still rehabbing from a knee injury that has many thinking his career is over, but he himself is not thinking about retiring right now. Right now, my goal is to just be pain-free from day to day. You know, I'm still having some issues getting up and down stairs and, you know, carrying my kids up and down stairs is, uh, is difficult. So my first priority is just to get my body in a, in a place to where I'm pain-free in my day-to-day -day living and go from there. The Seattle Seahawks are a first-place team right now, 4-3 and three after a win over the Chargers yesterday. But that win 
came with some pain. Star receiver DK Metcalf injured his knee. He won't need surgery, but the timetable for his return is not known yet. Yeah, I don't know that about when he when he can get back. I don't, I don't really even have a clue on that one. Um, but I know he's really anxious to try to make his way back. And, he, you know, he's in his mind, he wants to try to practice Wednesday. You know, and I don't know if that's even possible. It, they got to see how he responds to the treatment and see what happens. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have any more specific for you. And that's why I'm being really vague. <laughs> All right, there you go. Appreciate the honesty. All right, <laughs> thanks, Squire. Up next, celebrating Diwali, how this year's Festival of Lights is just a little bit brighter. All right, Jordan Armstrong is here now with a look ahead to Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan? Sophie, paramedics, especially rural paramedics, are in high demand, but extreme short supply. It's been well documented that a big part of the problem is the pay, or lack thereof, with some making just $2 per hour while on call and not responding to an emergency. Tonight, the provincial government says it is moving to fix that by boosting the on-call pay and incentives for rural paramedics. At 11, how much more they will make going forward and whether it will improve patient care. We'll hear from the union tonight. Sophie? All right, thanks for that, Jordan. Okay, so Diwali is always the celebration of light over darkness and good over evil. And this year, a big part of that is families reconnecting after two years of COVID separation. Krista Dow is live in Surrey with more on the festivities and the importance of being back together again in person. Krista. Uh, Sophie, the energy has been one of joy and happiness, all said and done. At least 10,000 people will walk through the doors of this temple here. That just shows you how much of a void there was, and the community here just extremely grateful to be back together again. So you like that, and the oil is what burns. With each dia lit, a symbol of the triumph of light over darkness, the flames acting as a roadmap home. We light dias to let the Lord know that, you know, this is where his home is and we basically light up the way home for him. Monday marks the start of Diwali, a five-day festival of light, celebrating the victory of good over evil. And after three years, in-person celebrations with no COVID restrictions have returned to temples, mandirs and gurdwaras. We are so happy because after two years, we are celebrating the Diwali festival in our temple. So lots of people come and pray to the Lord. Glad that COVID thing's over so that we can stay together as a family and just like celebrate with everyone and have some fun. We can see like everybody there like enjoy with their families celebrating shedding sweets and coming to temple and like enjoying yeah diwali is the largest holiday in south asia celebrated by hindus jains and Sikhs. themes of the day also feature renewal and prosperity and the exchanging of sweets and gifts it's like a christmas it's a family festival so whole family will come with their new clothes new ornaments it's a festival of happiness you might say at this Surrey Business Centre, families in a last-minute rush purchasing sweets, decorations and jewellery as they prepare for evening festivities. We got some traditional Indian sweets. It's like a tradition to come here every year. We love being here and buying sweets. We always go to Agarwal Sweets and we love eating jalebis. It's like our Christmas, right? So it's just non-stop prosperity, wealth, happiness. Is Diwali is all about that. 
and outside, so people are lighting dias, and inside people are coming by to pray and receive treats and uh, sweets and catching up. And of course, there will be fireworks. So where there are lights, there will be fireworks you can expect. Sure. All right. Thanks for that, and happy Diwali to everyone. Thanks, Krista. What a party. I'm hoping Bupinder brings in leftovers tomorrow. If there are any, I know it's very, very delicious, so there may not be, but I'm just putting that out there, Boop. All right, last word on weather from Christy before we go. Sure, so we are continuing to see this major cell roll across Metro Vancouver moving into the east. So heavy rain this evening for those areas, although it's ended here in North Van. Tomorrow we are expecting lighter rainfall in the morning, showery more so, heavier rain late afternoon, evening. And then Wednesday we'll see a little bit of a break. But overall this week we have several systems on deck. Hmm. Ah, fall is here, everyone. <laughs> Payback for all that uh, sunshine we got in, uh, in late summer. Uh, Diwali, we're going to see those uh, Diwali jerseys on the Canucks here coming up shortly, Squire. They will be worn in warm-up, yes. And they're very, very cool. Make sure you tune in. Check that out. Thanks for watching, everybody. Happy Diwali. Enjoy the celebration. Have a good night. Good night, all.